Hello, ladies and gentlemen. This is Dan Trotter, Pretty Good Bible Studies. I am in 2 Corinthians chapter 2. I'm going to cover verses 12 through 17 to finish up the chapter. Our context is this. Paul, in the first part of chapter 2, has told the Corinthians that they need to accept back, back into fellowship, the sinning brother, and it was probably the sinning brother who was sleeping with his stepmother, living with his stepmother. Paul returns now at the end of chapter 2 to talk about why he hadn't come to see the Corinthians as fast as, as they thought he might should have. Remember, he was being criticized for diverting himself from returning to Corinth because of the super apostles there, these big shots who claimed that they knew more than Paul and that Paul was a nobody and he was not competent to be a gospel preacher and he didn't love the Corinthians and so forth. And Paul has explained to them the reason why he didn't go to Corinth was because he wanted to spare them another painful visit. And he apparently, after he'd written 1 Corinthians, he'd gone over to Corinth after he wrote that letter, that which was very critical of the Corinthians, to try to straighten things out, and they didn't receive him. And they had a painful encounter, so Paul went to Corinth, uh, back to Ephesus, and he says, I'm not going to go back to Corinth until they straighten up. So we're in the process of that situation. Paul, instead of going straight to Corinth, goes up to Troas to meet Titus. He had sent Titus probably when he sent the letter of 1 Corinthians, and he says, Titus, see if you can get them straightened up. And at any rate, he had sent Titus at some point, and Titus, and he was waiting for Titus to come back to see whether the Corinthians had decided to fly right. So that's where we are here in 1 Corinthians 2.12. Paul says this. 2 Corinthians 2.12, Paul says this. When I came to Troas to preach the gospel of Christ, the Lord opened the door for me. Now remember, he was going to Troas just in order to to go up there right next to the hell spot. Troas is at the northwest corner of the Anatolian landmass. It's the northwest corner of Asia Minor. You hop over the Hellspot, you're into Thrace, which is the northern shore of the Aegean, and then you curl on down to the south and west, and you end up in Macedonia, and then further south you end up in Greece. And he was going to take that land route because he wanted to meet Titus coming back from Corinth rather than going over to Corinth directly. So he's all, he's in the middle of this circuitous Plan B land route, and Troas was on the way. Now, he says he came when I came to Troas to preach the gospel of Christ. I don't know if that was his intention to go up there or if it was just to meet Titus. But at any rate, at some point, the Lord opened the door for me. Maybe the Lord opened the door for him before he got there. Maybe it was after he got there. But Paul had a chance to preach the gospel, and he took advantage of it. And, of course, that slowed him down also. And so then the Corinthians are saying, well, where is he? And the false apostles are saying, he doesn't care about you. He says he's going to come to see you. Paul did tell them that in First Corinthians. He said, I'm going to come see you soon. And now he's dilatory. He's messing around with other people. And so Paul's trying to explain himself. Now, Paul went over from Troas to Macedonia, and I speculate maybe it was Philippi, which is the main church in Macedonia. Could have been Thessalonica, I guess. Could have been Berea. But at any rate, he went to, over to Macedonia, and he finally met Titus over there. We read that in 2 Corinthians 7, 5 through 7. In fact, when we came into Macedonia, we had no rest. Instead, we were troubled in every way, conflicts on the outside, fears inside, but God, who comforts the humble, comforted us by the arrival of Titus, and not only by his arrival, but also by the comfort he received from you. He told us about your deep longing, your sorrow, and your zeal for me, so that I rejoiced even more. So Paul had a bunch of fears and conflicts while he was in Troas. He goes over to Macedonia, meets Titus, and Titus relieves those fears 
and worries and conflicts on the outside and fears on the inside. He, he relieves all that because he tells Paul the Corinthians have decided to repent and fly right. And the Corinthians said they deeply longed for Paul. They were sorry for what they had done. And they were zealous to receive the Apostle Paul. So now Paul's happy and he's going to go on into Corinth himself in that last, for that last 18-month visit. For, excuse me, for that last three-month visit before he returns to Jerusalem to get there before Pentecost at the end of his third journey. Paul had been to Troas, which was the last stop before he got over into Macedonia. Troas is in Asia and Macedonia is in Europe, the hell spot dividing the two continents. Paul had been there. He had been there on the second journey in Acts 16, verses 8 through 12. This is when he was sleeping in Troas. He had a vision. A Macedonian man was standing and pleading with him, cross over to Macedonia and help us. After he'd seen the vision, he immediately made efforts to set out for Macedonia, concluding that God had called us to evangelize them and so forth. And then it says, as we go on there in Acts 16, he shows up after he ends up in Philippi. Okay, so that was on the second journey. And on the third journey, he was there too after these events in Corinth that we're talking about. After he leaves Corinth with his pleasant 18, a three-month visit, he leaves Corinth. He goes back to Troas. On the way back to Jerusalem, he had first decided to take the ship straight back to Jerusalem, but found out people were trying to ambush him. So he went back on the land route through Macedonia, through Thrace, crossed the Hellespont, back to Troas again. Acts 20, verse 6, we see his third Paul's third visit to Troas, but we sailed away from Philippi after the days of unleavened bread. This is in Acts 20, verse 6. And five days we reached them at Troas, where we spent seven days. So let me summarize Paul's three visits to Troas. On the second journey in Acts 16, 8 through 12, he stayed there for, well, he stopped over there briefly, stayed up all night preaching, and Eutychus falls out the window. That's his first visit to Troas. His second visit to Troas is this visit we're now talking about where Paul goes to Troas to look for the returning Titus as Titus returns from Corinth. And that was his second visit to Troas. His third visit to Troas was a short while later at the end of the third journey where Paul stops over for seven days on a seven-day layover on the way back to Jerusalem. So Paul's quite familiar with Troas. We go to verse 13, 2 Corinthians 2. I had no rest in my spirit because I did not find my brother Titus, but I said goodbye to them and left for Macedonia. He had no rest in his spirit because he wants to find out whether the Corinthians are completely blown up as a church. His daughter church, the church that he had started. Now this Titus that Paul mentions is interesting. He's never mentioned in the book of Acts, but he was quite close to Paul. He was highly respected by Paul. He was entrusted with the organization of the Poor Relief Fund for the Jerusalem Saints, and this is probably after the Corinthians had repented of their sins, and after Paul met Titus in Macedonia, then sent him back down, carrying the letter of Second Corinthians, carried, them back, carried the letter back down to Corinth, and Paul later would follow Titus on into Corinth. In Second Corinthians 8, 6, we see this, we read this. So we urge Titus that just as we, he had begun, so he should also complete this grace to you. I, I imagine he began collecting the collection on his first visit when he carried, probably carried 1 Corinthians, and then the, everything blew up, so he left. Then he came back again here, and Paul's saying, okay, he's coming back to you, he's carrying this letter of 2 Corinthians, and let's get this pork relief straightened out. So Paul respected Titus and trusted him with money. And you trust somebody with money, that means you trust them pretty good. Now, let's distinguish Titus's visits to Corinth. He went there two times. I've mentioned this before. I'll mention it again. First time when he perhaps 
some people say probably, carried 1 Corinthians to the, to the Corinthians, the letter of 1 Corinthians to the Corinthians. He went over there to check out the Corinthian situation and report back to Paul. We read this in 2 Corinthians 12, 18. This is according to the BibleHistory.com website. All of these visits and the timing of the visits and who was carrying what during the visits, all of this is a little bit speculative because a lot of times the scriptures don't directly say you have to put Bible scholars have to put two and two together. So I'm I'm saying this not with 100% certainty, but assuming or it's very probable that Paul refers to Titus going to Corinth in 2 Corinthians 12:18. Paul says this, I urged Titus to go and sent the brother with him, unnamed brother. Did Titus take advantage of you? Did we not act in the same spirit? Did we not take the same steps? Paul also, uh, Titus also went to Corinth the second time, and this is probably when he carried 2 Corinthians to the Corinth, to, to the Corinthians. 2 Corinthians 8, 16 through 17, Paul, again, according to BibleHistory.com, refers to this second trip, where Paul says, Thanks be to God who put the same concern for you into the heart of Titus, for he accepted our urging and being very diligent went out to you by his own choice. Now again, these passages in Second Corinthians don't mention which visit of Titus it was to Corinth. You have to, the scholars have to put two and two together. But I'm going to assume that just because it's simpler. That Titus has sent, has carried two letters. Now, First Corinthians could have been carried by Stephanus, Stephanus, Fortunatus, and Achaicus, three leading brothers at Corinth who were visiting with Paul in Ephesus. So we don't know, but I'm speculating that maybe Titus carried 1 Corinthians over and he carried 2 Corinthians over. And if he did, so that shows that Paul trusts Timothy with privileged uh, to Titus. Paul trusts Titus with confidential, privileged, and highly important information. Not only with money, but with information. So you see, Paul really trusted Titus. And of course, we know that Titus went with Paul after the third journey. He was accused falsely of ending up in the Jewish area of the temple complex, which was a lie. And so there was a big riot and and people and Paul at that time refused to circumcise Titus because it would look like Paul is saying that a gent, for a Gentile to get saved, he has to get circumcised. So that was a big deal. Also, Titus wrote the book of Titus. Excuse me. Paul wrote a letter to Titus, which is in the New Testament scriptures, where he set him. He trusted him in Crete to set up churches in Crete at some time. So Titus was a big deal in the in New Testament church history. But he was not mentioned in the book of Acts. I suspect it was just by coincidence. Now, notice that Paul had no rest in Troas as he waited for, as he vainly waited for Titus to show up. He had no rest of the spirit, even though he had an open door to preach the gospel. So he's preaching the gospel, but he's still worried about the Corinthians. John Gill points out that Paul had normal emotions of worry, just like any other man would. And I, whenever I hear that, I think, ooh, but didn't Jesus in the Sermon on the Mount say that worry was a sin? Well, maybe, it, well, I mean, there's no question. Jesus said, don't worry about today. But notice that Paul worried, but does that mean Paul's a sinner? He wrote two-thirds of the New Testament. It's the words of Paul that are in there inspired, not his thoughts and not his actions. So I would assume that Paul is just openly confessing his emotional grief. And that's something that we need to realize. A great faith is not inconsistent with normal human emotion, negative emotions. This, of course, directly contradicts the BS, the baloney sausage that comes out of the faith message, the name it and claim it and blab it and crap it, scream it, redeem it, possess it and confess it, folks. The Copenhagenites who act like if you show any bit of human emotion, that you don't have any faith, brother. Well, Paul had plenty of faith. He also had human emotions. Now, the fact that Paul left Macedonia, excuse me, left Troas in the face of an open door. He had an open door to preach the gospel. He's having success. 
And yet he decides, well, I'm going to leave. That shows how much he cared about the Corinthians because he wants to find out about the Corinthians. He was even more interested in the Corinthians than he was in his gospel ministry. That ought to answer these false apostles who are accusing Paul of not caring about the church at Corinth. 2 Corinthians 2 verse 14. But thanks be to God, Paul continues, who always puts us on display in Christ and through us spreads the aroma of the knowledge of him in every place. Now here Paul breaks off his discussion of his itinerary. He doesn't return to the topic of his itinerary until he gets to 2 Corinthians 7, 5. And again, the reason he was so concerned about his itinerary is because his critics were saying he had no reason for delaying his return to Corinth. The only reason he had for delaying his return to Corinth, according to the critics, was he didn't care for them. Let me look ahead to 2 Corinthians 7, verse 5, which says this, In fact, when we came into Macedonia, we had no rest. Instead, we were troubled in every way, conflicts on the outside, fears on the inside. So he takes up the, the narrative again. But we're going to leave that right now and just going to get to the more exciting stuff, the stuff about triumph in Christ. Of course, the thanks to God is the thanks to God, the thanks to God that Titus came back with a good report from the Corinthians. Praise the Lord, he's saying. And then Paul parenthetically states that God puts us on display in Christ. What is this imagery he's referring to? Well, he's referring to the triumphal procession processions that Roman generals did when they marched in the street with the generals in the front and the soldiers behind after a victory, a triumph. They also carried their POWs in the, in the back of the train at the end. The NIV Study Bible says that the Christians are like the soldiers in this triumphal procession. The general is Jesus Christ, and they're the soldiers, and so they're making a triumphal display. That's a pretty positive statement in the midst of all the grief that Paul has undergone. After all, he'd been beaten, flogged, shipwrecked, and so forth, put on trial. But no, that's not that's not the way he sees things. He says, no, I, I'm in a triumphal army of Jesus Christ. Jesus Christ is the general, and I'm marching in the army. Now, some people say that being put on display is refers to the captives, the POWs, at the end of the triumphal procession, because we are captured by Christ. Jesus is the general, and we are captured. I don't think so. That kind of cuts across the theme here of triumph. Remember the... The, the name of our little section here at the end of Second Corinthians 2 is Triumph in Christ. And being put in a cage as a POW doesn't exactly convey to me an image of triumph. Now, this spreading the aroma of the knowledge of him in every place, in these Roman military victory processions, people would light spices. They would burn spices in the street, and they would cheer at the same time as they cheered the conquering heroes. And that those spices would feel the air, fill the air, with a sweet aroma. And that's similar to Christians, because as Christians march through this world behind their victorious general Jesus, they are spreading the knowledge of Christ. And that knowledge of Christ is as a sweet aroma. In every place, everywhere we go. Verse 15, first, Second Corinthians 2, For to God we are the fragrance of Christ among those who are being saved and among those who are perishing. Now, the triumphal procession of Christians through this world is a sweet fragrance to believers as well as non-believers. How to believers? Well, because, listen, if I see Christians marching through the world spreading the gospel of Christ, and I'm a Christian watching this, I'm happy about it. That's a sweet aroma to me. We are the fragrance of Christ. The Christians are the fragrance of Christ. They're, they're, they are spreading the fragrance of Jesus as they walk through this world. If one eats garlic, one will smell like garlic. If one eats Christ and makes him a part of his being, then he will smell like Christ, and so he will march through the world, and he will smell like Christ. So 
perhaps the metaphor is not just the sweet spices that are being burnt at the Roman victory processions by the folks in the streets, but also maybe Paul is saying we ourselves smell like Christ. Didn't Jesus say we need to eat his flesh and drink his blood? He becomes so much a part of us that his fragrance exudes from our pores. Now Paul says, for to God we are the fragrance of Christ. There's a question here. He uses the editorial we are like, so maybe he's talking about he, the apostle, is the fragrance of Christ. Could be. Or it could be referring to all Christians. I prefer to take it to mean all Christians. I'm not going to take a strong stand on that. We go down to 2 Corinthians chapter 2, verse 15. To some we are an aroma of death leading to death, but to others an aroma of life leading to life. And who is competent for this? Now, for those who watch the triumphal procession of Christians to this earth, they don't smell that sweetness. Because they are being presented with an ugly truth to them is that they're going to hell if they don't believe in this Jesus. I just read the other day that Aaron Rodgers, the sainted quarterback of the Green Bay Packers, says, how can a loving God put two-thirds of the planet into hell? Well, it's because God is a just God as well as a loving God. The fact that he saves even one of us is an act of mercy. We all deserve to go to hell. and we all. It's like saying, we got a lifeboat, we pick up some of the some of the survivors, and we say, what kind of a loving captain would let all those survivors go down to the ground, drown, because he didn't pick up every last one of the survivors? Instead of rejoicing over those who are saved, all we do is point out to those who aren't saved and see, see there, the, the captain's a miserable captain. Now the Roman's not, the uh, metaphor is not perfect because a captain might, in, in my analogy, doesn't have the power to save everybody, but God does. He doesn't choose to do so because he wants to exhibit his justice to the world to show that rebelling against a perfect and awesomely pure God has its consequences and and sin needs to be shown as sin. And the reason, it's not just skeptics that have trouble with this. I mean, every Christian does. I do too. But the reason is, is because God has got to show that you don't mess with him. You don't violate the sovereign commands and nature and character of the God who made the universe without there being consequences. And the consequences are very, very severe. And Paul never, like the guy that on my YouTube channel who sends a text to me and says, a comment, and he says, how could you believe that God's going to torture everybody in the world? You know, Well, hey, everybody that goes to hell goes there because they want to. They don't want to be with God. Where are they going to go? They hate God now. And if you, and if you complain that hell doesn't exist after life, well, what about the hell on earth that exists now? Why would a loving God allow that to happen? You can't deny that, that situations are hellish right here on earth, you universalist Christians. So how do you explain how a loving God would allow all this hell to exist on earth? The reason is because he wants to show what happens when man uses his freedom to rebel against God. He is free to do whatever he wants. He's free to reject God. And look what happens. Hell on earth and hell after earth, too. Death leading to death, that's what the gospel does. And so we need to not be ashamed of the fact that there's a flip side to the salvation message. And the flip side is is that people who don't accept that salvation message are going to die. And that's why Paul says we are in a realm of death leading to death, because we're saying, look, your sins are going to kill you unless you repent. To others, a realm of life leading to life, those who are, those, those are the ones who accept the gospel. Now, Paul then ask this question at the end of verse 16, and who is competent for this? He, well, he's, he's referring to these false apostles who are saying Paul is not a competent apostle. And Paul's saying, oh, yeah. he's being sort of sarcastic here. He says, who's competent for this? Who's competent to go around 
bringing life to Christian life to Christians and death to non-Christians. Who is competent to send this gospel message out into the world? And he's getting ready to say, I am. I'm perfectly competent, even though you don't want to believe that. He answers this question, who is competent, in the next chapter, 2 Corinthians chapter 3, verses 5 through 6. It is not that we are competent in ourselves to consider anything as coming from ourselves, but our competence is from God. He has made us competent to be ministers of a new covenant, not of the letter, but of the Spirit. For the letter kills, but the Spirit produces life. He has made us competent, Paul says. He uses that word, what, one, two, three times in two verses. Competent. He says, he also mentions in that passage in 2 Corinthians 3, verses 5 through 6, he says that not only, he says that only those who are not competent in themselves are truly competent. You have to be not competent in yourselves to be competent in God. So Paul, again, refrains from bragging. He's trying to establish his authority by saying, yes, I'm confident, but he wants to not brag about what he does in the flesh. He says, no, everything I'm doing is in God, not in the flesh. He does that over and over and over in 1 Corinthians. Paul is referring here as Adam Clark says to the false apostles in Corinth who are saying Paul is not competent. Actually, they are not competent, but true apostles are. Clark says, quote, the men to whom God has given an extraordinary commission and sealed it by the miraculous gifts of the Holy Spirit, unquote, those are the ones who are competent. Second Corinthians verse, chapter 2, verse 17, for we are not like the many who market God's message for profit. Now, Paul really hits these false apostles or these, you know, I hesitate to say they're false apostles preaching a false message. They could have been Christians who just gotten who are just not flying right. There are a lot of times Christians do that, but let's put it this way, the super apostles who were criticizing Paul, for we are not like the many who market God's message for profit. Ooh, marketing, that sounds like a business term. Profit, that's like a business term. Folks, the gospel's not a business. I'm a business professor, there ain't nothing wrong with business, there's nothing wrong with marketing. Mm, okay, there's nothing wrong with marketing. <laughs> there's, there's definitely nothing wrong with profit. Nobody goes into business unless it's for a profit. But spreading the gospel for profit? Uh-uh. You can sell hamburgers for profit, but you can't sell the gospel for profit. Now, Paul is referring to the fact that these competitive competitor apostles are charging money. Now, either they're charging money or they're taking up collections. I'm not sure. Paul refused to do that. But it could be that these false apostles were acting like the typical Greek sophists. Remember, this is Greece now. This is Corinth. And the sophists, if you listen to Greek history long enough, you'll know that the sophists were famous. In fact, Socrates made fun of them. Here's how the NIV study Bible refers to these false teachers. They, that study Bible says that the false teachers were insincere. They were boastful. They artfully presented themselves in a persuasive manner. But their chief interest was to take money from gullible church members which case I guess they were taking up offerings without actually charging a set price. I don't know what they were doing, but they were doing it for money. And that was not like Paul, because he said in verse 17, we are not like the many who are doing that. Well, let's look at how Paul did it. As the NIV Study Bible points out, Paul had preached sincerely and free of charge. He took great care not to be a burden to the Corinthian believers. Now, how do we know that? We can look in the scripture in 2 Corinthians 11, 7 through 12, Paul says this, Or did I commit a sin by humbling myself so that you might be exalted because I preached the gospel of God to you free of charge? What he's saying is, is he humbled himself by preaching for free because the false teachers were saying, this man is so humble, he's so insecure of himself, he, he doesn't think his gospel is worth charging for. <laughs> See, the sophists, they thought their services were worthy of a fee. And Paul's not saying his, they were saying Paul thinks his Preaching is not worthy of a fee because it's so lousy. 
Paul goes on and says in verse 8, I robbed other churches by taking pay from them to minister to you. And, of course, taking pay is speaking metaphorical. He didn't have a salary from other churches. But he's speaking metaphorically here. Verse 9, when I was present with you and in need, I did not burden anyone for the brothers who came from Macedonia. That would be from Philippi mainly. In Thessalonica, they came from Macedonia, supplied my needs. I have kept myself and will keep myself from burdening you in any way. In other words, I'm not going to take money from you, Corinthians. But these false apostles out there, they are charging money or they're collecting money from you. As the truth of Christ is in me, this boasting of mine will not be stopped in the regions of Achaia. As Paul continues in Second Corinthians 11, verse 10, and then verse 11, he says, why? Because I don't love you? Is that why I'm not taking money from you? God knows I do. Why am I going to keep boasting about not taking money from you because I don't love you? God knows I do. Verse 12, but I will continue to do what I'm doing, i.e. not taking money from you, in order to deny the opportunity of those who want an opportunity to be regarded just as I equals of what they boast about. In other words, in order to keep the false prophets, apostles from saying, see there, Paul, you're robbing the Corinthians, you're taking money from them. Now, Paul knew he had the right to take money from the Corinthians. He says that in 1 Corinthians chapter 9. Starting in verse 12, if others have this right to receive benefits from you, don't we even more? Paul says, I've got the right to take the money from you. However, we have not made use of this right. Instead, we endure everything so that we will not hinder the gospel of Christ. And hindering the gospel of Christ means taking money and letting people accuse you of false motives when you preach the gospel. Something that I wish that every televangelist on this planet would take note of. Don't you know that those who perform the temple services eat the food from the temple, and those who serve at the altar share in the offerings of the altar? They take money... In the same way, the Lord has commanded those who preach the gospel to earn their living by the gospel. So he's saying, hey, it's every right. We have every right to collect money. That's our job. And people can pay us. Not a salary now, because that, that implies control, and the apostles were free from control. But let's put it this way, as independent contractors. <laughs> that's, that's a rough uh, analogy, a rough metaphor. They could collect money. They could collect donations. But they didn't have to. Paul says in verse 15, 1 Corinthians 9, But I have used none of these rights, and I have not written this to make it happen that way for me. I've, none, I've used none of these rights to collect money from you. And I'm not writing this to tell you that in order to make you feel guilty so you start giving me money. I'm not doing that. For it would be better for me to die than for anyone to deprive me of my boast. What boast? The boast of not taking money from you. And he'd rather die than take money from you, Corinthians. That's pretty strong language. For all of you f Christian fundraisers out there, going out there making people irritated with you as you work on their guilt complexes and their and you manipulate them with marketing techniques in order to get them to separate their dollars from their wallets. Paul says that he preaches not for profit, but with sincerity. In verse 17 in Second Corinthians 2, we speak, he's talking about we, the editorial we, Paul. Paul is speaking with sincerity in Christ. As from God, apostolos means sent, right? He's sent from God and before God. So not only is his origin from God, he's He's operating in the presence of God where God can see him and judge his motives, which are perfectly pure, as opposed to the motives of the false apostles whose motive is money. All right, ladies and gentlemen, we finished chapter two of Second Corinthians. We'll start with chapter three in the next audio. Chapter three is a short chapter, 18 verses. I'll try to get them all into one video, uh, one audio. The subject is the new covenant. Ministers of the New Covenant. Paul's a minister of the New Covenant, and since I believe in New Covenant theology, that has relevance for me. I hope you stay tuned for that audio, and I hope you enjoyed this one. 